You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 398 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, with the last episode, the fighting was really starting to heat up on the northern part of the battlefield. On the morning of Saturday, September 19th, 1863, the second day of the Battle of Chickamauga, Thanks to decisions made by Major General George Thomas on the Federal side and by Brigadier General Nathan Bedford Forrest on the Confederate side. That morning, 14th Corps Commander George Thomas decided to strike east from Kelly Field toward Reed's Bridge with all the strength he had immediately at hand, that is, with the divisions of John Brannan and Absalom Baird. We spent some time speculating why Thomas would have done this, since it seemed so out of character for him. He'd earned a reputation for normally being cautious and deliberate, but here he was making an aggressive, seemingly spur-of-the-moment decision. We said the best explanation would probably be that when Thomas had talked to William Rosecrans the night before, Rosecrans might have indicated to Thomas that he, that is Rosecrans, was hoping that by sending Thomas north, that move would not only protect the Lafayette Road, the Army's direct link to Chattanooga, but that there might also be some opportunity for Thomas to strike the flank of the Confederate force that had crossed to the west side of Chickamauga Creek. However, that's all just speculation. Well, if Thomas's motives are a bit of a mystery, there's not really any need to guess as to what was behind Nathan Bedford Forrest's decision to slug it out with the Yankees on the morning of the 19th, since Forrest was combative by nature and was never one to turn down a fight. But we said that slugging it out with the Yankees that morning wasn't really Forrest's job as a cavalry commander. What he should have done was just what Federal Cavalry Officer Colonel Robert Minty had done the day before, that is, skirmish with and delay the enemy, falling back slowly while sending information to the Army commander so that he could decide what to do about the threat. But by making the decision to stand toe-to-toe and slug it out with the Federals on the morning of the 19th, 
Forrest basically robbed Braxton Bragg of having a choice about how to deal with the enemy movement east towards Reed's Bridge. And so, on the 19th, as Bedford Forrest called for support, or simply commandeered nearby verbal infantry, and as George Thomas fired off urgent requests that reinforcements be sent to him, both army commanders, Bragg and Rosecrans, found themselves caught up in the rapidly developing momentum of the fighting on the northern part of the battlefield, and they were basically reacting to circumstances rather than being able to exert much control over what was happening. In the last episode, we talked about how, as the Federals advanced east toward Jay's Mill and Reed's Bridge, two brigades of infantry from Brannon's division, commanded by Croxton and Vanderveer, were engaged by two brigades of rebel infantry, led by Wilson and Ector. Claudius Wilson's and Matt Ector's brigades were both part of Walker's Corps. Wilson had been ordered to move up and support Bedford Forrest's embattled rebel cavalry, but Forrest had simply commandeered Ector's brigade. At any rate, when Wilson arrived on the scene, he engaged Croxton's Federals near Winfrey Field, while Ector, when he came up, moved to the north and took on Vanderveer's Yankees along the Reeds Bridge Road. As Ector's rebels moved forward against Vanderveer's Yankees, a soldier in the 2nd Minnesota described the appearance of the Confederates, saying, quote, Soon over the little rise, the heads of a solid line of men in gray coming toward us in something like a rush. We greeted them with a telling volley. Private Samuel Sprott, a member of a unit of Alabama sharpshooters assigned to Ector's brigade, was on the receiving end of that initial Yankee volley, and he described it as a, quote-unquote, murderous fire. On the Federal side, Division Commander John Brannan, with both of his leading brigades engaged, decided to divide his reserve brigade, Connell's brigade, in order to provide reinforcements to both Croxton and Vanderveer. Brannan personally led the bulk of the brigade, two regiments and a battery, to reinforce Vanderveer, while one regiment moved to the right to reinforce Croxton. With the addition of two more regiments and another battery of artillery, Vanderveer's Federals easily overmatched Ector's Confederates, who suffered heavy casualties. Two regimental commanders went down, including the well-liked Colonel William Young of the 9th Texas, who was badly wounded in the chest. It was his second serious wound, the first coming in the form of a bullet in the shoulder at Stones River the previous December. Young would recover from this chest wound and eventually be promoted to Brigadier General, but would also be wounded three more times before the end of the war. With Brannon's division fully engaged, George Thomas ordered his other division commander, Absalom Baird, to, quote, push rapidly forward, end quote, and join the fight. That meant the two beleaguered Confederate infantry brigades led by Wilson and Ector would soon find themselves battling no less than five brigades of Federals. 
Heading east into the woods, Baird's division adopted a formation similar to that of Brannon's, with two brigades advancing up front and one trailing behind in reserve. Baird's first line was composed of Colonel Benjamin Scribner's brigade on the right and Brigadier General John King's brigade of U.S. regulars on the left. Behind them was Brigadier General John Starkweather's brigade. The nature of the terrain and the direction from which the rebels appeared had caused Brannon's line to pivot and face more south than east. While unplanned, that directional shift now provided Baird's division as it headed due east into the woods with a perfect opportunity to turn the flanks of both Confederate brigades. Wilson was probably not aware of any threat to his left, but Ector, to the north, understood his right flank was vulnerable. In fact, Ector had already sent an aide, Captain Constantine Kilgore, to Forrest expressing concern about the situation. However, Forrest's reply was that Kilgore should go back and, quote, tell General Ector that he need not bother about his right flank. I'll take care of it. Wilson's brigade, already engaged with Croxton's Federals, was struck first, when Scribner's men appeared on their left flank at the northwest edge of Winfrey Field. Scribner's charge was totally unexpected and routed the surprised Confederates. Wilson's whole line unraveled from left to right, and the officers were unable to halt the retreat short of Jay's Mill. Wilson's collapse alerted Ector to yet another flank threat, this time to his left and rear. Once again, he sent Captain Kilgore to find Forrest. However, Forrest, never a patient man to begin with, now, according to Kilgore, became, quote, furious. He turned on me and shouted, tell General Ector that, by God, I am here and will take care of his left flank as well as his right. But, unfortunately for Ector and his men, Forrest had no troops with which to fulfill that promise. While Wilson was being routed, John King's five battalions of U.S. regulars were advancing almost due east, past Wilson's right flank, and directly into Ector's exposed left. As the regulars drove ahead, the brigade's battery unlimbered on a slight ridge and poured shells into the stunned Confederates. In this spot and others, artillery batteries were able to unlimber and fire on the enemy because the woods where much of this fighting took place didn't look like they do today. You see, in 1863, it was old-growth forest with large, mature, widely spaced trees. Local farmers fenced their fields but let their animals roam free. As a result, most of the forest was clear of underbrush, leaving lines of sight amongst the trees of 100 or more yards. Hit by the regulars and blasted by artillery fire, Private C.B. Carlton of the 10th Texas Dismounted Cavalry wrote home that Ector's brigade was, quote, flanked on the left and commenced falling back in confusion, end quote. Carlton went on to say that the retreating rebels then discovered the, quote, Federals had got in our rear. 138 men from Ector's brigade would be reported missing, almost all of them captured by King's regulars in this portion of the fight. 
By this time, Ector's total losses were approaching 50%, and his battered brigade was finished as an organized combat force that day. Wilson's hard-hit brigade suffered similar losses. With Ector and Wilson both routed, the Confederates were, for the moment, out of the fight. On the Federal side, Brannon's and Baird's divisions paused and reorganized their ranks. Croxton's brigade fell back to fill their cartridge boxes. Scribner's men replaced them, aligning along the northern edge of Winfrey Field. King's regulars formed at right angles to Vanderveer's line, along the ridge where their battery had unlimbered, while Starkweather's brigade went into reserve behind Scribner. And with that, a short lull settled over the battlefield. While the combat near Jay's Mill was heating up that morning, both Army commanders were making decisions that would expand the fighting into a full-scale battle. On the Federal side, William Rosecrans had shifted George Thomas north to Kelly Field to protect the Lafayette Road, the Army of the Cumberland's direct link to Chattanooga, and to frustrate any enemy plans to turn his left flank. Perhaps, maybe, Rosecrans had also indicated to Thomas that if an opportunity presented itself to strike the rebels' flank, then Thomas ought to take advantage of that opportunity and launch an attack there on the northern part of the battlefield. As we said, that's just speculation, but it does help explain why George Thomas took it upon himself on the morning of the 19th to convert his defensive assignment at Kelly Field into an attack east toward Jay's Mill and Reed's Bridge. And when the fighting started to escalate and Thomas called for more troops, Rosecrans obliged him. For example, Brigadier General Richard Johnson's 20th Corps Division was already on its way. Johnson's men were passing directly in front of Rosecrans headquarters, newly relocated that morning to the Widow Glenn's cabin, when Old Rosie personally ordered Johnson to report to Thomas. Rosecrans informed 20th Corps Commander Alexander McCook that he had sent Johnson's division north to Thomas. Rosecrans also ordered 21st Corps Commander Thomas Crittenden to detach Major General John Palmer's division and send it to George Thomas as well. If quick reinforcement of Thomas was what was desired, then Palmer's division was the logical choice. That's because not only was Palmer the farthest north of Crittenden's three 21st Corps divisions, but one of Palmer's brigades, led by Colonel William Gross, was already moving north up the Lafayette Road, having been tasked with watching the gap between Crittenden's left, above Lee and Gordon's Mills, and Thomas's position at Kelly Field. And then bonus points if you remember that another of Thomas's own 14th Corps divisions was also nearby. The two brigades of Major General Joseph Reynolds' division were temporarily halted in the woods north of the Widow Glen cabin, resting after their night march. Thomas had ordered Reynolds to halt there earlier, holding back that division in reserve. Then, when he received word that both Johnson's and Palmer's divisions were being sent to him, Thomas decided to leave Reynolds in place. 
Meanwhile, since Robert Minty's cavalry had been at loose ends since their fight the day before at Reed's Bridge, Rosecrans now ordered Minty to take his troopers north to Rossville to help guard the Rossville Gap and the steady stream of army wagons that were rolling up the Lafayette Road and back toward Chattanooga. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. On the Confederate side, Forrest's decision to slug it out with the Federals posed a problem for Braxton Bragg, who was beginning to realize that control of the situation was slipping away from him. The day before, Bragg had expected 20,000 men to be across the Chickamauga by midday, positioned to strike at Crittenden's flank at Lee and Gordon's Mills that afternoon. But thanks to the stubborn defense of Minty's Federal Cavalry and Wilder's Lightning Brigade, that timetable had gone out the window. The head of Hood's column didn't reach Vineyard Field until well after dark. Walker's troops didn't finish crossing the creek until nearly dawn, while only one-third of Buckner's Corps, a brigade from each division, ventured across at first light. Still, when Bragg rode forward the morning of the 19th, he did so intending to attack as previously planned. He was discussing this very plan with Hood, Walker, and Buckner when fighting suddenly exploded to the north. As we said in the last episode, Bragg sent Walker to take charge of the action and authorized him to commit his entire corps if necessary. 
With that decision, Bragg's focus shifted from his own planned attack at Lee and Gordon's Mills to the northwest, where the fighting near Jay's Mill seemed to be taking on a life of its own. Even after Walker's troops were diverted to deal with this new problem to the north, Bragg could still have sent 15,000 men forward to attack Crittenden's flank at Lee and Gordon's Mills. These Confederates included Hood's five brigades and Buckner's six brigades. A concerted attack by Hood and Buckner could still have delivered a powerful blow and potentially badly damaged Crittenden's corps. However, such a movement would also make Bragg's own right flank vulnerable if this fighting around Jay's Mill turned out to be a major federal attack. Not willing to take that chance, Bragg decided to put any move by Hood and Buckner on hold while he waited to see how the action to the north developed. As we said at the end of the last episode, when Walker left Bragg and galloped north to Jay's Mill, he discovered, much to his dismay, that Wilson's and Ector's brigades had not only been thrown into a major fight without his knowledge, but also that each of those formations had suffered heavy casualties and been roughly handled by the attacking Federals. Furious at this wholly unexpected turn of events, Walker decided to bring up his other division, led by Brigadier General St. John Little, and he fed it into the fight. Little later recalled that after receiving Walker's order, quote, no time was to be lost. We were quickly ready. Forward we went, and in a few minutes came into immediate close contact. The 3,800 men of Little's two brigades, led by Colonel Daniel Govan and Brigadier General Edward Wathel, advanced north, undetected, toward Winfrey Field. The Confederate blow fell on the Federals with almost no warning. When his brigade surgeon stumbled up to Benjamin Scribner and told him, The enemy is in your rear and on your right and are coming down upon you like a pack of wolves, Scribner tried desperately to get his brigade faced about, but there was no time. As Waffles Mississippians charged forward, Lieutenant George Van Pelt's Battery A, 1st Michigan Light Artillery, and its support, the 10th Wisconsin, managed to swing around and face the oncoming rebel horde. But despite a brief stand, which cost Van Pelt his life, Scribner's brigade collapsed. The Wolves then fell upon John Starkweather's brigade. A member of the 21st Wisconsin would say, quote, all at once and without warning, a heavy volley was fired into our ranks at a distance of about 30 yards. End quote. As Govins, Arkansans, and Louisianans struck, Starkweather, like Scribner, desperately tried to pivot his regiments to face the oncoming rebel horde. But his brigade's stand was as futile as it was brief, and Starkweather's men joined Scribner's in fleeing either north or west through the woods, anywhere they could go that was away from the Confederates. Baird's division was collapsing. With the defeat of Scribner's and Starkweather's brigades, that left only John King's regulars, but they too faced the wrong way. 
The swelling sound of battle to the southwest, directly in King's rear, alerted him to the danger approaching from an unexpected quarter. Within minutes, King's worries were confirmed when Baird appeared and ordered him to reorient his brigade to face the rebel advance. King was still trying to shift his men into position when the Confederates came rushing through the trees. According to Captain Henry Hammond, commanding the 2nd Battalion, 18th United States Infantry, quote, We at once changed front to the rear and formed a hasty line. We had scarcely got into position before a division of the enemy advanced upon us on the run. King would report he was, quote, assailed by an overwhelming force, end quote. And like Scribner's and Starkweather's brigades, the regulars also broke and fled, running for their lives through the woods. The rout of the regulars completed the shattering of Baird's division. Considering the combat probably lasted only 30 minutes from start to finish, his losses were staggering, with the number of captured especially heavy. Scribner reported about 400 men missing, and Starkweather another 250. King listed 500 missing, more than one-third of the 1,400 regulars he took into the fight on the 19th. Both of the batteries assigned to Scribner's and King's brigades were captured lock, stock, and barrel, while Starkweather's, the 4th Indiana Battery, escaped with only two of its six guns. As they fled northward toward the Reed's Bridge Road, with Little's rebels hot on their heels, many of Baird's men found themselves running through the lines of Vanderveer's and Connell's brigades from Brannan's division. Lieutenant Colonel Judson Bishop of the 2nd Minnesota described the moment, saying, quote, A straggling line of blue appeared, coming toward us in a wild retreat, their speed accelerated by the firing and yelling of the exultant Confederates. Bishop said the Minnesotans held firm with quote-unquote grim composure until the routed men passed through their line, at which point they unleashed a killing volley into the oncoming Confederates, quote, which abruptly ended the yelling and the charge. At this point, Vanderveer's Ninth Ohio appeared on the scene, after being called forward from guarding the brigade's wagons. The regiment's colonel, Gustav Kammerling, immediately ordered his men to charge. Kammerling's counterstroke pulled the 87th Indiana and 17th Ohio into the attack also, and this sudden counterattack by three federal regiments proved too much for Wathel's exhausted and increasingly disorganized Mississippians. Walther's brigade retreated, falling back several hundred yards as fast as they could go. Edward Walther was attempting to get his regiments formed up again when he discovered that Govan's brigade was also retreating through the woods out beyond his left, that is, to the west. Worse, the Yankees were now threatening to turn Walther's own left flank. This change in circumstances was because Croxton's brigade, from Brannan's division, had returned to the fight after they'd fallen back an hour earlier to fill their cartridge boxes. 
Croxton's regiments had shot away more than 60 rounds apiece in their earlier fight against Wilson's Confederates. Now, resupplied and having caught their breath, they were in an ideal position to deal with Govins onrushing Arkansans and Louisianans. With a remarkably good grasp of the relative positions of both friends and foes in this confusing and rapidly changing fight, John Croxton deployed his regiments and marched south through the woods several hundred yards until he was astride Govan's left flank. Croxton then advanced his line eastward. Daniel Govan was aware of this new threat, but his brigade was in poor condition to meet it. Up until this point, his attack had been wildly successful, but his losses had been heavy. Several of his regiments had suffered casualties approaching one-third. Govan now managed to turn some of his Arkansans to face the oncoming Federals, but those 250 men were far too few to cope with Croxton's advance. With no other choice than to fall back or risk being destroyed, Govan ordered his entire brigade to retreat back toward Winfrey Field. St. John Little's division had pushed too far and paid the price. The rebel soldiers of both Wathel's and Govan's brigades fled back south in wild retreat. The broken regiments retreated into Winfrey Field and then into the shelter of the woods beyond, where they were finally rallied and reformed. With the retreat of St. John Little's division, Walker's entire corps was now out of the fight, and once again the Confederates were nearly out of fresh troops to continue the fight. However, one other rebel brigade had arrived on the scene, and Nathan Bedford Forrest would now use it in a final effort to locate and turn the elusive Federal left flank. We said previously that as far as his cavalry command, Forrest had entered the fighting with just one brigade on hand, led by John Pegram. But at about 10.30 on the morning of the 19th, Colonel George DeBrell's cavalry reached the vicinity of Jay's Mill. These six regiments of Tennesseans were actually Forrest's old brigade, so he knew the officers and men well. Forrest had DeBrell deploy his 2,200 men astride the Reedsbridge Road, facing Vanderveer's Federals. Ector's Confederate infantry had already discovered that Vanderveer's position was a strong one and not likely to fall to a frontal assault. So now Forrest was going to shift Debrell to the north and try to turn the Yankees' left flank. Debrell had already dismounted his troopers and now, leaving only the horse holders behind, the Tennesseans moved north several hundred yards through the woods, then turned so as to move south and strike Vanderveer's left flank. Unfortunately for the rebels, Vanderveer was alert to the danger. His skirmishers had spotted the Confederate movement, and he later reported that the enemy, quote, appeared on my left and rear, but not before I had changed my front to receive him. Vanderveer easily foiled DeBrell's flanking maneuver, although, in truth, it doesn't seem as if George DeBrell was very anxious to press home an attack against the Yankee infantry with his dismounted cavalry troopers. 
His reported losses were only 10 killed and 40 wounded. With the failure of Debrell's flanking attempt, the fighting around Jay's Mill and Winfrey Field sputtered to a halt around noon. Both sides had traded heavy blows. On the Confederate side, Walker's Corps was about fought out. Ector's and Wilson's brigade had suffered losses approaching 50%. Casualties in St. John Little's division weren't as severe, but both his brigades, Govins and Waffles, had been battered and routed by Federal counterattacks. On the Federal side, Baird's division, that is the brigades of Scribner, Starkweather, and King, had been roughly handled and now pulled back up the Reed's Bridge Road to sort themselves out. Two brigades from Brannon's division, Van Der Veer's and Connell's, covered Baird's withdrawal. Only Brannon's 3rd Brigade, Croxton's, moved forward, keeping in contact with the retreating rebels. Meanwhile, Braxton Bragg's mind had turned to the Confederate troops over on the east side of Chickamauga Creek, where Leonidas Polk's and D.H. Hill's corps were still holding down the fort, so to speak. You see, before being distracted by the fighting to the north up around Jay's Mill, Bragg had already decided to bring all or part of Polk's corps over to the west side of the creek, deploy them behind Buckner's troops, and in that way bolster his attack against Crittenden's left flank at Lee and Gordon's Mills. Before the fighting broke out to the north, those orders had already been issued, and so Polk had directed Major General Benjamin Franklin Cheatham to march his five-brigade division across the Chickamauga. Frank Cheatham would have his men across the creek and in position by about 9.30 on the morning of the 19th. In the meantime, though, Bragg, as we know, decided to have Hood and Buckner, and now Cheatham too, hold their positions while he waited to see how things went with Walker to the north. Well, when things to the north started to fall apart, and Walker, about 11 o'clock, called for help, Bragg's eye turned to Cheatham's division. Cheatham's was a large division, with about 7,000 men and 20 guns in five brigades. Around 11 a.m., bypassing Leonidas Polk in the normal chain of command, Bragg issued orders directly to Cheatham, telling him to march up the Alexander's Bridge Road and aid Walker. Following Bragg's orders, Frank Cheatham moved north and had his men formed up and in position by noon. By that time, on the Federal side, both Johnson's 20th Corps Division and Palmer's 21st Corps Division were also ready to enter the fray. As you guys will recall, earlier in the episode, We talked about how those two divisions were being moved north to reinforce George Thomas. Well, Palmer had marched his men up the Lafayette Road to the vicinity of the Poe Farm and then faced them east. At the same time, Johnson's leading divisional elements were forming up at the south end of Kelly Field, neatly filling the gap between Thomas's position and Palmer's line. 14th Corps Commander George Thomas was now in command of units from all three of the Army's corps. 
That was because Rosecrans had decided to reinforce Thomas with whatever troops were closest, without regard for the formal chain of command. And while that seemed to matter little at the moment, that decision would lead to substantial confusion over the next two days, with serious consequences for the Army of the Cumberland. In any case, Thomas now ordered Johnson and Palmer to move forward, that is, to advance east, and replace Baird's and Brannan's exhausted troops. That meant these six fresh Federal brigades were now poised to clash with Cheatham's five Confederate brigades, opening the second phase of the day's fighting on the afternoon of the 19th. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is This Terrible Sound, The Battle of Chickamauga by Peter Cousins. Cousins has a novelist's eye for detail, which, combined with his painstaking research, make any of his Civil War books, including This Terrible Sound, a gripping read. You won't regret having it on your Civil War bookshelf. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We want to say thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Christian D., Edgar R., L.D., Kaz, and S. Wardle. Manuel R., Greg S., John A., Henry T., Austin G., Jeffrey G., and Dante. Thanks, one and all. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.